0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Aligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Sean Doherty, chairman of the JDRF T1D fund. And T1D stands for Type 1 Diabetes. Uh, The fund, it's a a venture philanthropy fund established to create a market in type 1 diabetes by using their own capital and expertise to convince venture capital, biotech, pharma to make investments needed to cure type 1 diabetes. So whether you're into impact investing, venture capital, philanthropy, or simply keen to learn about innovative models to tackle challenging problems facing our world, well, I think you'll very much enjoy today's conversation. So without further ado, Sean, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. I appreciate it. Excellent. Where well, we have a little bit of a time difference. You're out there in Boston in the east coast of the US. I'm here in the UK, five hours, I think. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about T1D Fund. Uh, you're the chairman and love to find out what it's all about.
1: The, the T1D Fund is a venture philanthropy fund that's dedicated to catalyzing a market. To cure this disease. It's designed as essentially the key to unlock the door to bringing private capital uh, in into our space to convince private capital that there's real opportunity and need in curing this disease. And it acknowledges this key point that almost all of the money that go that goes into curing disease comes from the private sector, and we acknowledge that reality and try to bring them in.
0: Now, for some of us who may not be familiar with the T1D fund, when you're saying curing this disease, why do we specify which which one we're talking about?
1: The disease is type 1 diabetes, which we refer to as T1D. Uh, T1D is an autoimmune disease. It actually has a lot more in common with multiple sclerosis uh, and lupus and celiac than it does with type 2 diabetes. That causes a ton of confusion. There's about 20 type 2 diabetics for every one type 1 diabetic, but the disease is quite different. Um, In T1D, type 1 diabetes, suddenly your own body destroys the ability, the body's ability to make uh, beta cells in your pancreas. Um, Beta cells produce insulin. Insulin keeps us alive. Think of insulin as a, a hormone coursing through your veins that takes blood sugar out of your bloodstream and converts it into energy. And that's how you live. My son was two years old when he was diagnosed with type one diabetes. Came out of nowhere, perfectly healthy first two years of his life, and something triggered an autoimmune disease that, in the space of weeks, he went from fully healthy to not producing any insulin at all. And when that happens, uh, you're you basically have a lifetime of um, infusions or injections of insulin. You see people probably with insulin pumps or maybe um, blood sugar monitors. Those are people with type 1 diabetes. They they need to supply insulin from outside in order in order to live. And it as a result becomes a daily balancing act.
0: Yeah. And tell us what's the state of affairs with regards to this disease and the efforts that are happening globally to address it and whether there are gaps there. And presumably there are because you're doing what you're doing.
1: There are a lot of gaps. There they're about about 10 to 15 million people around the world living with this disease. Sometimes it's very difficult to count because it's misdiagnosed, particularly out of developed countries. Most science says that about one out of every 300 uh, people uh, in the world develop develop type 1 diabetes. Um, The disease is, is difficult to see coming. In fact, it's nearly impossible to see coming without advanced screening. And so as a result, this is usually diagnosed in the emergency room. Um, that uh and and then after that you're you're subjected to this lifetime of uh of uh, of insulin and blood sugar checking and things like that which I can can talk more about generally speaking though this disease is controlled by treating the symptom the symptom is out of control blood sugar and so it's treated through shots through insulin pumps through checking your blood sugar there is no Cure at this point. There's no way to reverse this disease. There's no there's no drug you can take to to get rid of type one diabetes, um, and so that's the thing that we're focused on. I will say that there's pretty good technology. It's easier to manage this disease today than when my son was diagnosed. When he was diagnosed, we would have to give him shots of three different kinds of insulin every several hours. We were checking, uh, pricking his fingers. Um, to to draw blood to test with a strip to see what it was that's 20 years ago now it's gotten a lot better with some of the technology but the fact remains we're using a 100 year old drug in insulin as the way to treat this disease and i think that
0: we can do a lot better Mm. are we uh anywhere near uh even having an idea of effectively how to tackle the cause of this the
1: cause is elusive. We're not sure still what triggers the auto, the autoimmune reaction, but that's true of an awful lot of autoimmune diseases, actually. But we have very good ideas, and there's reasonably good science about really the two parts of dealing with this disease. First, you have to stop the autoimmune attack, and that's true even if a miracle cure happened ten years from now for my son. His body still doesn't like beta cells in the pancreas. We think that it would still try to attack it. So number one, you need some sort of immune therapy. And there are a lot of those that exist with other autoimmune disease. And the second is you need some way to reproduce, to create insulin producing beta cells in the pancreas in a body that just hasn't made them. In in many cases, my son for 20 years and and other people longer than that. So it'll be a combination of cell therapies, gene therapies, pretty advanced stuff um but we have it at the t1d fund we have over 20 um cure programs in the companies that we have investments in so there's great hope but this is very expensive and it takes a long time and a lot of patience our goal the t1d fund is to just get going on it, and that's what we've
0: been doing for seven years now yeah yeah with regards to philanthropy obviously there's a lot of um different uh uh, medical ailments that philanthropy is trying to address. In this case, though, when we're looking at the T1D fund, it's not straightforward philanthropy by any means, right? And tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, your innovative approach to, to to tackling this and mobilizing resources.
1: Our approach is, is tied up in the idea that about 95% of R&D dollars over the last 20 years has come from private capital. So our philanthropic approach starts right there. Let's accept the reality that private capital will drive cures in any disease. There's no reason to think that would be any different in type one diabetes than every other disease that, that everyone is working on. But at the same time, what do we have as philanthropists? So I've been part of this organization called JDRF, which is a large public charity in the United States it's the most prominent public charity um, in the world alongside a private foundation called the Humsley charitable trust in in also in the united states that funds uh type 1 diabetes cures and and care for that matter and so with that organization those two organizations fund a huge portion of all the research around the world a group of us started thinking in 2015 when we were looking for, gosh, we, we need more innovation. We need to try to figure out how to move this faster. As we looked deeper into the disease, we discovered, first of all, there was essentially no investment in cures. We were clouded a little bit by the fact that there was a decent amount of, it, of investment in pumps and blood sugar monitors and things like that. But there was next to zero venture capital investment in type one. How do we fix that? When the facts are that 95% of the money comes from elsewhere, it's nothing we can really do, can't is there? But isn't there? What we saw that we could do is take this knowledge and network that we possessed in these two organizations and figure out a way to deliver that to the private sector. So instead of seeing risk and something that they didn't want to participate in, they saw opportunity. They saw white space. They saw an opportunity to make a real difference. And honestly, a lot of us who started it had, to come out of the investment world. What investors crave more than anything else is due diligence. They crave information. They crave an ability to be able to make risk-based decisions. They don't mind taking risk, but they need to understand it. And when we could go to them and say, we're literally a phone call away from anyone on planet Earth who knows something relevant about the science of this disease, there is a nugget of an idea here. And what if we could package that up and turn it into something that could be a useful
0: vehicle for private enterprise. Fascinating. Is that what was holding back investment, uh, private investment in this space previously? Is it just an inability or uh, the whole thing just being a little bit of opaque in terms of not seeing the the potential reward for investing in this space? I think there were several things. Um,
1: yes is the answer to your question for a few reasons that we discovered out of the gate. First, and I alluded to it a few minutes ago, There's a lot of confusion between type 1 diabetes and type 2. Uh, One's an autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes is, and type 2 is more of a metabolic disease. Type 2s generally make insulin. They just don't use it particularly efficiently. Type 1s, on the other hand, don't make any at all because their body attacked it and destroyed the ability to make it. People didn't understand that. People also got confused because people used to call type 1 diabetes juvenile diabetes. And so an investor hears that, and say, uh, I'm not gonna start with a pediatric disease. Why? That's expensive. It's gonna be really hard to run clinical trials. Well, it turns out more than 50% of diagnoses with T1D in the world are in patients over the age of 20. And 85% of the people living with T1D are adults. So you start to say that to investors and you see, their light, you, you see the light go on. You tell them there's more genetic overlap with MS and lupus and T1D, than there is between T1D and type two diabetes. And then the other thing that we notice is people really assume that insulin was a cure. And when you get deep down under and explain it, all of a sudden, you see the light bulbs go off. And this changes from ah, this is risky, too small, kids disease, I don't want to deal with it to wait a minute. This could be really interesting for us
0: so you're gathering um well you're telling these folks look we we are just a phone call away we have all the insight we have all the networks we have uh we're presenting to you a a picture that isn't as devoid of opportunity as you might have originally thought and actually you know getting involved could be very fruitful not just financially but obviously for the social well-being as it were of of, of everybody around us um who, who are these individuals who Uh, in whom you've sparked a a light bulb moment and are starting to think, are they traditional philanthropists who who have the resources? Are they pharmaceuticals? Are they VCs? Right.
1: So let's divide it into two groups. There are the people who supplied the funding for the T1D fund and and then our co-investors who invest in companies with us. Two different groups. So the T1D fund is philanthropic. We raised over $100 million from just over 100 families, all of whom are directly affected by type 1 diabetes. And they all bought off on this idea that what we had to do, what we had to deliver in order to tap into all this capital that was just uninterested in our disease, was to create a vehicle that could help deliver knowledge and network. Since knowledge and network is itself a philanthropic asset, so to speak, we had to raise our money philanthropically. I think of ourselves as impact investing fund completely. But in order to achieve the impact that we wanted to achieve, which is to draw boatloads of private capital into curing type 1 diabetes, we needed to organize ourselves as a philanthropy. Because the only reason we're interesting to anybody as a partner is because we deliver this knowledge and network. So that's group number one. Those are the donors. They're generally you know people that are just really devoted to taking a big chance who understand the power of private capital and say, gosh, if we can connect private capital and great science, great things are going to happen. And candidly at the beginning, that's how simple it was. We're not really sure which path this takes, but until we put the professional class of life sciences, venture capitalists in the middle of curing this disease, we are whistling in the wind. Philanthropy cannot do this our own. So that's the first donors. Second group are the targets. Life sciences venture capitalists, institutional venture capitalists, um, principally those are in the United States, although they're they're a growing number um, in Europe as as well, and the small biotech companies that they fund. The engine of innovation in life sciences around the world right now are small venture-backed biotechs. People think that it's big pharma companies. That's actually not really the case over the last 20 years. Big pharma companies are critically important. But generally, they're running phase three confirmatory trials that cost an extraordinary amount of money. Venture capital can't pay for it. The only people who can pay for that are pharma companies. And they have worldwide reach in sales and marketing. So what pharma companies do instead is have huge groups that look at attractive venture backed biotech companies that are really the engines of of innovation. As I said, they're the big risk takers. I mean, these are companies that can a bad day at the FDA or a bad day in the lab and and that's it. But it's an appropriate place for risk taking. So that's our second group of how do we talk to the the institutional class of life sciences VCs and the companies they back and convince them to be involved. They are not part of the fund. They don't put money in the fund. They don't give to the fund. We act like another fund in the universe partnered alongside them to invest in these companies. Yeah, yeah.
0: Where do you see things now and where do you see them in the in the next in the foreseeable future for for the T1D fund? Are you looking to hopefully disappear in the not too distant future because of the of the success?
1: Our our goal coming in because we sort of accept the fact that we're we aren't the cure. We're not the driver of the cure. We are a catalyst for a market which hopefully then will 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 drive toward cures so to put this in perspective for every dollar we've invested over the last three years we've attracted about ten dollars of private venture capital alongside us so we're a pretty small fund we're about a 200 million dollar fund that's the largest that we're aware of the largest venture philanthropy fund in disease uh but in the scheme of things that's not particularly large we'll invest you know five to $12 million over the life of an investment in a company. But what we're really targeting is getting some of the name brand and really powerful institutional life science species to put in 10 times that. And so that's well underway now. And I think we're we're now in a place where um, we're having to do a lot less convincing about the opportunity in type 1 diabetes than we used to. So the state of play now is that We're aware generally of almost every opportunity in type 1 diabetes in the market. Um, Venture capitalists know to call us if there's an opportunity in T1D. And to be clear, a lot of times that's a program within a company that's working on several diseases, usually several different autoimmune diseases. Uh, And so I think that the VC market is alive and well. But as to where we are right now, I think the next several years are going to be... Really critical. Pharma is not very involved in curing our disease right now. And by not very, I mean, there's really only a, a a few that are that have active cure programs. At some level, that shouldn't surprise us. Because remember a few minutes ago, we talked about how pharma actually doesn't do a lot of early stage innovation that's mostly been outsourced to small biotechs. Well, these small biotechs are kind of up and running. There were there was one T1D cure program when we launched the fund. It was a company called Sematherapeutics that's since been bought by Vertex. There's now more than 20. These are early. Most of them are preclinical. A couple of them have gone into phase one trials. But our job is to make sure that the pharmaceutical companies who really will provide the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, required to drive to a cure, they need to start paying attention now. And I view that as our job. Just like our job was to make sure that life sciences VCs understood the opportunity here and the unmet need, and therefore the economic burden of this disease. Now we need to turn our attention to make sure that pharma companies and in the United States system, health insurers, which for better or for worse, make an awful lot of the decisions directly or indirectly on the viability of a drug. And so we're sort of in this, I think, really important transition point. Life sciences is slow. This isn't like something that's going to happen in the next six months. This is the next six years of how do we start to to change that market. So this is this is uh, it's always a long journey in in this, and that's not satisfying to people sometimes. But it's just the facts.
0: Yeah. Now, in terms of galvanizing, in terms of convening the right stakeholders. Uh, Having that that trust building, as it were, for people to say, "Yeah, you know, we can see where you're coming from. We can see your your passion for this. We can see that you your family's been directly impacted by it. But also, it doesn't hurt that you've spent quite a bit of time at Bain Capital, right?"
1: I think that that helped on the margin with uh, credibility with donors. That um, that uh, and it's not just. Me, it's several other of us that were the were all all parents of people with type 1 um, who had been around this disease for a very long time. I mean, I, at 20 years, I'm on the low end of the experience with this disease among the people who are around the table. And they came out of business. They understood how to think about a business problem and look at how... I think in any kind of situation, any kind of problem solving, you want to say, okay, what are the different assets that we have at the table? What is missing? How can we best take advantage of this asset that we have and make it better? And that's why the group of us said, well, this is all about knowledge and network. And if we can package something to deliver it, that would be great. So I think on the margin, I think that the people who started it and who operate it, the T1D fund is operated independently of JDRF, We're owned by it, but it's run like a venture capital fund. I think that was attractive to people, but candidly, I'm not all that important to what happens every day. The most important thing that we did was hire a great life sciences venture capital staff. So the people that run the fund every day, it's eight of 8 people that are on the professional staff, uh, at the associate level, the lowest level, they have PhDs. Uh, this is, these are exceptionally smart people. It's, it's run by a group of managing directors with extensive life sciences venture capital experience. And like anything else, anybody that you ever talk to, If anybody's being really candid with you, they would say, of course, it's all about people at the end. And so we knew out of the gate with our donors that our goal was to go hire a really professional life sciences VC staff, because if our goal is to attract private capital, that private capital on the outside has to have confidence in the human beings who are representing the T1D fund as investors. So I don't invest the money. Um, The people around the table who were there at the beginning were there to set up this idea, and core to that idea was hiring a great team. If you can't hire a great team, you aren't going to attract any venture capital. You're not going to get companies to start T1D programs, and you probably wouldn't have raised any money in the first place. The reason we were able to raise money is that our donors saw that we were serious about it, and this wasn't a gimmick, that we were going to um, hire a, a, a terrific staff.
0: The uh, the idea for the fund itself, uh, how, who came up? Who said, okay, let's have a T1D fund?
1: Oh, that was, that was a, that was definitely a group is, I'd say it was five or six of us sitting around a a room, but it started with this, this idea from a a gentleman named John Brady, who was the, the chair of, of JDRF generally. And he approached me to, to ask me to look into whether a fund might be viable as a way to, to, to disrupt the space. Um, A colleague of mine at Bain Capital uh, who himself had T1D started doing some work with some other colleagues of him. He was at business school at the time um, on leave from Bain and started doing an analysis of the market. And that's when the light bulbs went off is that if you really broke apart how the market was working or I should say not working in type 1 diabetes and you see this stunning number, that the largest round venture round in curing this disease is only $42 million. And that virtually all the pharma activity or the big company activity, biopharma activity was on the device side. It was on figuring out ways to deliver insulin more conveniently and efficiently and monitoring blood sugars better. So once you kind of sifted through the fog, which I really credit Colin Motley is his name. I credit him for seeing that moment. And from there, it was a group of us around the table, like, well, how do we fix that? And the way it seems to be is that we need to convince venture capitalists. How do you convince a venture capitalist? First of all, you come with money. And second of all, you come with something attached to that money, some value that you create. The value that we provide is knowledge and network that no one else can provide, full stop. And so, from the beginning, from when we launched in December 1st of 2016 until today, we always stay within ourselves that we aren't going to cure type 1 diabetes. It is better if there's a $30 million uh, investment, a company wants to put $30 million into a T1D program, the best result is that we're putting in something like $2 million and private capital is putting in 28. Why? Because they're the professionalized class in this group. They... Have the Rolodex of CEOs and CSOs. They know the farm, phar- the right people in which pharma companies to partner with. They know the best drug developers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What we provide is knowledge and network. And so, if you stay within yourself, which I think is it's critical in any business strategy, I think it should be critical in any philanthropic strategy. Figure out what your value is, how you fit into the mosaic that every single human problem is a mosaic of different actors don't claim that you're going to boil the ocean what we do is essentially wash rinse repeat we look for opportunities within companies we make a small investment we try to leverage that effectively by getting five to ten times our money from professionalized institutional life sciences vcs uh when they exit we're out too because we're looking at the next opportunity. And that's why frankly, we've built up a portfolio of over 20 active cure programs because we've stayed within ourselves. We're not claiming that we alone are curing
0: this disease because it's a team sport to cure diseases. Great. And now if, and I know for a fact, there are uh, some people listening to this show who are philanthropists, uh, who care deeply about certain diseases who have expressed some frustrations at times about the limited impact they view their giving uh, as actually making and who have expressed a view that we'd like to do something a little bit differently. We'd like to be a little bit more innovative. We'd like to get into that impact investing side. What sort of wisdom would you like to share with these folks in terms of how they might best deploy their resources to tackle X or Y or Z disease? How can they do it in a way that's just beyond that writing a check, but embraces some, some parallels to what you're doing?
1: I think that there is a commonality, something that's kind of universal that we've seen that I would advise. But before I get to that, I think that there is something that's unfortunately not that universal. Every disease is very different. T1D, we actually really don't even understand the cause all that well. We think it's heterogeneous, meaning that, you know, different people kind of manifest it in different ways. There were only two charities, philanthropies, that really supplied most of the funding. There was no venture capital investment, et cetera, et cetera. So those were our facts. And so I get approached a lot by philanthropies, like we would start like to start a fund. I say, first, number one, make sure that you're not doing it just because you think it's a really cool way to raise a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, which unfortunately I think is the attraction of a lot of it. Philanthropy is under a lot of pressure to raise money. So number one, make sure that fundraising is not the reason. If you're talking about it or operating it as a fundraising vehicle, thinking it as a fundraising vehicle, it's not going to succeed. And it's going to fail as a fundraising vehicle. There has to be a reason for it. But you need to look at your individual disease and see where it is. Our model wouldn't work in cancer. There's too much money in that already. So there's probably another, a different model, the different spin on this ball that could be really interesting in different sorts of cancers, probably if you get very, very specific or something like that. But I think that, so so number one, make sure that you're really looking at your specific circumstances and, and tailoring it. And what is your value add very specifically and try to stay within yourself. The second, however, is at least from disease, there are a lot of things that philanthropy can and must do, particularly in discovery research really only governments and, and philanthropies fund discovery research. There's no model for business people in early discovery research. And so philanthropies need to resist the temptation to say, we're driving a cure now. It's like, no, actually, products that are getting approved right now might have had discovery research in the 80s. Keep the engine going. There's some things that philanthropy can't do on their own, and part of that is launching markets. And so the generalized thing there is accept the reality that venture capitalists, pharmaceutical companies, and in the United States, health insurance companies will drive cures to the extent there are one, and reframe the way that you think of disease philanthropy as essentially a service to the folks that will actually lead the way. What can we do? What can we as a philanthropy do to help private capital cure the disease that we care so much about? And so I think the generalizable is this is a fundamental reorientation of the way that disease philanthropies think when you think of advertisements for disease philanthropies it's we are closer to the cure every day we are driving the cure the data suggests otherwise and not when 95 percent of R&D comes from private
0: capital are there any have you seen any any instances where where research uh, discovery research is funded by philanthropy and that that philanthropy somehow acquires the IP or maintains some link to the IP so that if the discovery research leads to something fruitful down the line, that philanthropy involved can then benefit from it and redeploy for more? Re- I'm just thinking out of the box here, there, but I'm There are,
1: there, there are and, and certainly everybody, people try to do that. I mean, university technology transfer offices are basically very, very focused on that exact issue. Um, it's very difficult to get IP rights over basic research. At least in the United States, it's perhaps another much broader uh, element of a of a of a dislocated or broken, inefficient market. But at least now, it's very difficult to patent early base, basic research. That doesn't mean people don't try. There are ways that philanthropies make great that maybe in the long run if there's if, if there's a product then a royalty might kick off and some of those have been quite successful actually the CF Foundation um Cystic fibrosis Foundation and their they now in partnership with vertex is a good example of that um but but generally speaking that uh to me I don't think it's particularly impactful this was never about us making money now we have made money and as a result we don't raise money anymore we don't we don't ask donors for money we're we're self-sufficient at this point with this model because we've when we when we divest from an investment the money goes right back into the pot and so we're we're very well capitalized we have over 100 million dollars of cash to support our current portfolio and to invest in new companies so the only way in which it was really about money for us is that it makes us self sustaining. Um, but that's a
0: key thing. I think that, that aspiration to become self sustaining is, in some ways, that holy grail which many philanthropists and philanthropies look to. It's like, how do we become self sufficient? How do we start? Because you don't want to have a situation where you have a problem, the donor comes in, they stick their hand in in a pot of water, and the water goes up. Uh, what a level goes down as soon as you take your, your hand out you want to have a situation where you come in you put your hand in there and then somehow you ignite something that becomes sustainable long term.
1: yes and i think when we started it that was kind of a glimmer in our eye that if this works perhaps that would be the case after about five years we we realized that we could get to a place where we we were we decided to top off the fund we raised um, $50 million in about a year, right in the middle of COVID actually, and, and actually said, when we get to that point, we're just going to stop for now. And, and because we didn't, we don't want to waste philanthropist money. But at the beginning, we weren't sure if we would get to that. I mean, there were core questions, is anyone going to come work for us? Is anyone gonna give us money? Is any venture capitalist actually gonna to want to invest in a T1D company? And then is the biotech company gonna to want to add a T1D program? For us, those were the four monsters, you know. Um, the idea of being self-sustaining someday was uh surely in our minds, but we had uh we had other monsters to beat our way through first.
0: Well, I'm glad you beat the monsters and you you achieved that uh, that self-sustaining model. Uh before we part ways. Is there a key takeaway you'd love to share with the audience? Uh, Something you'd like them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode.
1: Our world right now is filled with intractable problems. It's also awash in a lot of capital. And people in groups who are gonna sit and be thoughtful about how to pair up challenges and capital in a very deliberate, business-oriented way I think have an opportunity to to change things um i hate it when people say the the problems of the world just can't be solved they're just too big now because i think i think that our human capacity is better than that and we just have to be very deliberate and specific about how we form particular solutions and tailor them to the problem at hand
0: i love it sean thank you so very much for joining us on the do one better podcast today it's been thoroughly enjoyable and uh, very much a learning exercise, and I wish you continued success, and hopefully uh, this uh, T1D will be in the rearview mirror in the not-too-distant future. Thank you, Alberto. Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Sean Doherty, chairman of the JDRF T1D Fund. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at legi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you. I hope you found it as informative as I did. And I'll catch you on Monday.